Here at Doxedo Bloom, we're excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning from my side. My name is Lorraine, and I can see this busy. This building is busy filling up really quick. So it's wonderful being with you guys this morning, and um, I hope you're enjoying the time with us. And I hope you're ready to be preached to, because I'm very, very excited about what I have to share with you guys this morning. We are in a brand new series called Disciple Shift, and this is a series that we do every year. And the heart behind the series is to really trust God to move things in our lives life, our hearts, our way of thinking when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus. May there be a shift in the way we do discipleship in this church. Now, this specific series for this year is what God is placing in our heart is that we call it Discipleship 5, Devoted to the Way. We're going to look at what devotion means as a disciple. Quickly turn to the person next to you. Tell them, I'm devoted. But no, 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 like you mean it. Come on. Come on. Quickly. I'm devoted. To the way. To the way. Great. So, as I've said, we're talking about devotion. And all over our lives, wherever you've been walking and whatever you've been seeing, you've probably come across some devoted people. You've probably seen some things that took extraordinary feats of devotion from people, giving time, giving energy, and so on and so forth. I just thought I'd like to share one of them with you quickly. And the one that I thought really trumps all at this stage when I'm looking at history is the Great Pyramid of Giza. Now, just to quickly put it into perspective, the structure you're seeing behind me was built 2,560 years before Jesus. I mean, I'm talking about seriously, seriously early. This is an old building, really old. We're talking about four millennia ago. That is insanely old. Now, you would think that over all of these thousands of years that this structure would have revealed all of its secrets by now. But yet it still ceases to amaze us. As early back as 2017's fall, they discovered new chambers in this pyramid that they didn't know were there. I mean, we're talking four millennia and we find new things. As I started researching this immensely beautiful and amazing structure, I discovered some stuff that I didn't know. And I want to quickly share it with you guys. I want you guys to see how the pyramids would have looked like on the day of completion. Quickly check out this video. Can you imagine that process? <laughs> Trying to do that with every single block. We're not just talking about moving the blocks into space, but actually sanding them down, polishing each and every single sandstone. And now, if that is not miraculous by itself, this building, this wonderful building that we call the Pyramid of Giza, stands at 450 feet high. To just put that into comparison, guys, just quickly, here is a picture of Christ the Redeemer, a statue in Rio. You see all the little dots there at the bottom? Those are people, okay? Just to give you an idea of the size of this building. Another one, quickly, is the Statue of Liberty, a little bit more of a famous statue as well. Down there, as they just like 
you see people on scale to this big statue. Now, these two statues would compare to the size of this building as follow. Check it out. Just to give you guys an idea of how big the Pyramid of Giza actually is. For nearly 4,000 years, guys, this was the tallest building in the world. No other building has this record. We're talking four, four millennia long. This was the biggest building in the world. Nobody could get close to it. It took 2.3 million stone blocks to put it in place, which weighed between 2.5 and 1.5 tons each. As you guys have heard, it took millions of man hours and dedication and devotion to see something wonderful that we still gaze upon today. Devoted people can achieve remarkable things. And when it comes to devotion, there's kind of like these two sides to devotion. To explain what does it mean to truly be devoted. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. The one side of the coin explains and says, you know what it means to be devoted? It means that you give up, you sacrifice, you dedicate yourself, you persevere, you like pour out your life. That's what it means. It just it doesn't just means I'm committed and kind of I hope I am committed when I can do it good kind of no no it means I'm giving absolutely everything I have that's the one side of the devotion the other side of devotion however is the thing that would inspire you to actually do it that's the other side of the coin. It's the vision of that beauty, the vision of that pyramid, the vision of um, I want to be the fastest man in the world. Um, no matter how hard I try, I won't get there, but Usain Bolt does. And he's absolutely devoted to that craft. He's giving absolutely everything to achieve the one thing that's busy drawing him, inspiring him. Devotion is not something that is driven it's not a driven by an expectation, guys. It's a drawn by something beautiful, wonderful, awestruck, something that captivates you. That is what it means to be devoted. Now, what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to go back to a time when the Christians weren't even called Christians, when they were simply referred to as followers of the way. Referring to Jesus as being the way, the truth, and the life. And these guys saying, we got a glimpse of something glorious. We got a glimpse of something that inspires us and took our lives over. And we are devoted. And we're going to look at what they've devoted themselves to. And um, what it's all about. And here it is. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. You can read with me on the screen. It says the following. Right after the church has been birthed, it makes this comment. It says, those who have accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And we're going to be looking at all four of these devotions over these four weeks. Today's one is going to be the apostles' teachings. We're going to be looking at what does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teachings. Maybe just quickly first mention this. What is the apostles' teachings? Well, it is basically what we call today the Bible. Because what in those days would happen is the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, would go around and they would 
teach on the Old Testament scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, and say to people and show people how Jesus actually came to fulfill all of those scriptures. And that's captured today in what we call the New Testament. Just for interest's sake, the Bible didn't exist for 300 years after this moment. And for 300 years, the, the Christian movement and what God started doing with his church already took over the Roman Empire before they had a Bible. These people devoted themselves. It's not a religious act. It's something deep. There's something more in this story. Now, I know when I'm saying reading the Bible, I can see some of the faces going, oh, man, come on. You can't be serious. I don't even read my storybooks at night. What the heck am I going to read the Bible for? It's so boring and there's so many things that I do not understand. And why is it even relevant? I mean, I can't read the Bible. I quickly want to share with you something that I found really interesting. It's a study that was done um, last year or a year back about, but it's a short, short while back. It's a study done with about 40,000 people where they went to go and look at patterns and people reading Bible. This wasn't the aim of the study, but what they discovered in the study was really amazing. Just listen to this. So this is what they've discovered. For people who would read Bible once a week, there wouldn't be any big changes in their life. Once a week could mean you sitting here on a Sunday and you're hearing something out of the Word. Okay? If you start reading twice a week, spending time in the apostles' teachings and the Bible, it would be like a almost noticeable, but not really. On week three, they find a little blip, like a blip, like a heart monitor blip in your behavior week. That's kind of like what's happened. Day three, if you're reading it for three days. But here's the profound discovery. The moment you get to day four, it's like booming off the charts. You're just like out there. It has a massive impact on behavior in people's lives. Listen to that kind of impact that it does have. If you spend more than four days a week in the Bible, here is some of the stuff that happens. When it comes to feeling lonely, this is what they've discovered. When it comes to feeling lonely, that drops by 30%. When it comes to dealing with anger issues, just because you're spending time in the Bible, it drops by 32%. When it comes to bitterness in your relationships, it drops by 40%. When it comes to alcoholism, being addicted to alcohol, it drops with 57% by spending time just in the Word. When it comes to being spiritually stagnant, now I'll be honest with you, this is one of the areas that I've heard most people struggling with, speaking to me as a pastor, like, Lorraine, I don't know, I just don't feel Jesus, I'm not saying, I'm like, are you reading your Bible? Let's just start there, let's just start spending time with Him. You know, that drops 60% just spending time in the Word. Being addicted to pornography drops 61%. Spending four days a week, only four days a week in the Bible. Now on the flip side, this is what goes down, but can you imagine what's going up? Just listen to this. So what jumps up is sharing your faith goes up 200%. Having the boldness to go and share your faith, just because you're spending time with some of these teachings that the apostles were sharing. And discipling others, having the boldness to share with others, goes up 230%. So what is this apostle's teachings all about and what does it mean? What does it mean to devote myself to something like this? What's the picture? And what I would like to do this morning is I'd like to take you guys on a quick journey through the life of Mr. Peter. 
And he played quite a pivotal role. And I want us to look at how he discovered something as Jesus broke open the apostles' teachings to him. Now, he played, like I said, a pivotal role in the church. And I want to dive in where we find him there, man of the hour, all the power standing right after the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And he's preaching his heart out, this guy. Can you imagine that? Standing up for the very first time, first Sunday service, first sermon ever preached on a Sunday in terms of the church being birthed. This man has a great track record because after he says, do you want to give your life to Jesus? 3,000 people puts up their hand. Can you imagine? I promise you, I wish as a pastor that would happen in my life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the moment as he's sitting there and he's experiencing what God is busy doing, as he's giving birth to a brand new kingdom through these people? So he preaches. It's a wonderful moment. It's anointed. Lots of people comes to Jesus. However, there's a part of Peter's sermon that to him is only head knowledge. It's actually the first part. After he explains to everybody, listen, guys, we're not drunk. This is just Jesus happening. It's amazing. We don't need alcohol. We have the Holy Spirit. Things is amazing here. So don't worry about it too much. It's way too early. Then he dives into what's actually busy happening. And when he dives into that, he's quoting something out of the prophet Joel, the book of Joel. He he quotes a, um, a prophecy there. And I want to read it with you guys. It says the following. It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, In the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Everybody say all people. And everyone, everybody say everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I quickly want to ask you, what are you thinking when I'm saying all people and everyone? You're thinking the world. It's clear to see that that is not what Peter was thinking. Peter was not thinking the world at that stage. And here's the reason why I'm saying it. History tells us that only after persecution started, the disciples started moving out to the outer ends of the world. In fact, Peter was so consumed with just thinking about his own people, the Israelites, that God had to come and visit him and give him a revelation that he has something bigger in mind than what Peter is busy proclaiming. I don't know if you've ever been where Peter was, where the Bible has only had knowledge to you. It's kind of like, I know all the verses. I have all, I can recite them all. But for some other reason, there is no life in what I'm reading. I really don't understand. I don't grip it. It's not inside of my heart. It's not waking me up in the morning. It's just dead head knowledge to me. That's exactly where Peter was could mean like I know all the verses but I go to church but I'm still captured in sin some other sin I'm a devoted follower of Jesus but I'm not tithing for some other reason there it just doesn't make sense to me there's no life in my journey with Jesus the reality is is in Peter's life something changed now I just want to get something right here. I don't think that having Bible knowledge is a bad thing. I really don't think so. 
I really think it's amazing to have some quality biblical knowledge, to know the scriptures. So I'm not playing that down today. However, I do believe that knowledge is like a little bridge that God uses, and it's built over to the bigger brother that you meet on the other side, whose name is Revelation. Okay? So... I think when we're reading the word and we're spending time in the apostles' teachings, it's not just an academic exercise. And I know we grew up in a world where academics is like the number one thing. But this is not the picture. This is not what they've devoted themselves to. It's not just head knowledge. There's something more. What do I mean by the difference between knowledge and revelation? Here's what I mean. Two weeks back, if I'm not mistaken, you guys can correct me. We went to Clarence. We had the privilege of going to watch a beautiful wedding on that Saturday. We drove through only for the wedding and came back because it's really amazing. But we didn't think we would find something like this. I arrived at the venue. Vainant came to meet me and like, hi, hi, I'm chicken. We're going to get married. It's a story happening. And he points me down saying, you just walk down there and you'll get to this little beautiful forest. And that's where we're going to get married. I'm like, whoa, I'm getting excited here. So we're walking all the way down and we find this little forest and it was just breathtakingly beautiful. It was amazing. It felt like I'm in fairyland here. This is amazing. Can you, can you imagine how beautiful it is? I mean, I'm just standing, I'm just taking in the beauty and the awe of this amazing space. I actually, in fact, took a video for you guys. I want to show you quickly. There at the back, you guys can quickly cue this. Just check this out. There's a the little chapel. Don't listen to all of my, as you can hear, my girl wants to go somewhere. <laughs> Great. So there you guys have kind of a picture. But can I be honest with you? It really doesn't do justice to what we've experienced. My wife's like someone disgusted. And yeah, it's really like that. And it's true. Because in the same way, guys, it's almost like when we only look for head knowledge, it's like you get a piece of information. That's information that I've given you. But when you have a revelation, it's like you're standing there. You're experiencing it for yourself firsthand. It overwhelms you. It blasts away your senses. You cannot take it. It's like amazing. You cannot stand back. You cannot but be in awe of what you're experiencing in that moment. And this is what had to happen to Peter. He had to move from information to revelation. That was the only thing that would get him going on the mission that God had for him for his life. Just quickly, a few differences between knowledge and revelation. Knowledge causes you to think. Revelation causes you to see. Knowledge teaches the mind. Revelation changes the heart. Knowledge is easy to forget. Revelation is easy to remember. It just stays with you for the rest of your life. Knowledge is informational, where revelation is experiential. You get to experience it for yourself. So let's get back to our friend, Mr. Peter. He finds himself in an upper room where God comes down and meets him. Peter's on his own little mission, going to save all of Israel. Doesn't say it, but that's actually what's in his heart and in his mind. God comes to test him. And as he's testing him, I'm not going to read the whole portion now. I don't think we have enough time, but I want to tell it to you guys. He's praying 
And the next moment, he experiences like there's this huge duke. What do you call a duke? Help me quickly. Cloth. Coming down with all kinds of animal in it. And the animals, according to Jewish law, they're not pure animals. You shouldn't even touch these animals. Never mind eat them. If you touch them, you're also impure. That's kind of the picture. Okay. So you can imagine Peter sitting there his whole life long. He's been taught this is wrong. You don't touch this. And then the next moment, there's a voice out of heaven saying to him, Peter, take and eat. Peter's shocked. It's like, no, this is the devil. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> this must be the devil. This cannot be. You see how caught, up, how caught up he is in his own world. Israelites, my world, Jewish world, that's it. That's the whole picture. He says, Peter, eat. Peter says, no. He says, and he tells, this voice tells Peter twice to not do something. And the first time he says the following. He says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. It's the first statement. So Peter looks at the old scriptures. Do you hear what I'm saying? He's seeing the law. He's seeing that this is unclean. This is the rule. But he's missing the heart of what God is doing. Saying, guys, these things were just pointing to the fact that you need someone to make you clean. And I've done it. I'm here. Then he goes on. It's like, God, this is way too much for me, way too much for me. And after finally he surrenders to God's request, there's another voice that comes through, the same voice saying another thing. He says the following. He says, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. What's he talking about? He's saying that they were a group of guys coming from a Roman guy at some Cornelius' house, and he wanted to see Peter. And he's saying, don't hesitate to go with the Romans. I've sent them. And what's happening in this vision? God is busy linking the picture of Jesus' completed work and the fact that people would call the Gentiles unclean to God's finished work saying, Jesus has cleansed every single one. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. Do not call that impure. So just background on this, the Jewish people, you just never eat anything unclean. And I can imagine in Peter's mind, think about this for a moment, being faithful to the law meant that you were a good Israelite. You were proving yourself worthy every single step of the way. And we can read the Bible like that. We can read the Bible as a set of rules and use it and abuse it in a sense to put ourselves in a place where we think God owes us because we are so good. It's kind of the thing. That's what Peter's doing. And in the midst when God's speaking to him, he's saying, God, no, no, no. I've never. That's literally what the text says. I've never eaten. Never put my lips to something that's impure. God says, you're missing the point. of something bigger. And then when it comes to the Gentiles, because the Gentiles, this becomes a metaphor for the way Peter is actually treating the Gentiles. He has this hostile approach and attitude towards the Gentiles. So much so that God actually needs to tell him, Peter, you can go with him. I've sent him. Then he rocks up at Cornelius' home and when he gets there, he starts preaching the word and the next moment before anyone confesses that they love Jesus or they get baptized or anything, the Holy Spirit comes down 
And God blesses the Gentiles with the exact same thing that he blessed them that morning when Peter had the greatest sermon of his life and 3,000 people came to Jesus. And in that moment, Peter had a revelation. He moved from information to revelation. And what was dead to him that morning of the sermon became alive in his heart. Became alive in his heart. So much so, listen to this, that in Acts chapter 15, he would stand at the Jerusalem council. And there would be a dispute about the Gentiles. They need to become Jews before they can follow Jesus. And Peter would, Peter would be the one. Not Paul. We would all expect Paul. But no, no, no. This time it was Peter. And he stands up. Moment of bravery. Boldness. Says, guys, how can it be that when God has already revealed, when God has already said, this is what he wants. You see the revelation. You see the experience. And he becomes the one that was hostile to Gentiles, becomes the defender of Gentiles. The first church meeting, he stands up saying, guys, you're missing the point. God has something bigger in mind. Peter first missed the word. He knew it. But he missed the heart. I want to read to you what Jesus himself says. John chapter 5, verse 39 to 40. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. These are experts in the word. It says the following. It says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What's Jesus busy saying? Saying there's a way to be engaged with the Bible and still miss the king. That's what he's saying. And to all of you insiders, insiders meaning if you grew up in church and you know everything about Jesus and you don't feel life when you're reading the word, it's probably because you're speaking Christianese and you're missing Jesus. I just want to mention this to you. It was the religious leaders that killed Jesus. Religion kills your relationship with Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? When you go to scripture, no, we surrender ourselves. We open up our hearts and we wait to hear about the person himself personally. To the outsiders, as you've heard, the one that was hostile towards Gentiles, outsiders at those stage, people that think, what's this Christian Bible thing about? I don't really understand it. I don't really like it. I want to tell you that the man that was against the Gentiles was turned while he was reading and discovering brand new things in this same word. Wonder why they devoted themselves? Here's why. We don't study the Bible to get information, guys, but to meet and discover a person. When you and I meet Jesus, you will discover that God is not against you, but that he is for you. You will discover that he has favor over your life. I cannot tell you for how long I have struggled with that and how many people I have talked to that feel I need to read my Bible to prove myself worthy for God's favor. Yet, the story of this Bible speaks of totally the opposite story, picture. It's not you work in order to get his favor. No, no, no. 
it is you work from his favor. You've already received it. It's Jesus coming down, saying, God is not against you. He is for you. Many times what we do with this favor, once we read about it, is we either downplay it like I've just, oh, well, we downplay it or we discard it. We downplay it. How do we downplay it? We make favor of God favors of God. So we think, okay, yes, Jesus, please. I don't know if you've ever done this, but you rock up at, let's say, Mimosa Mall. You want a parking space, but you want it really close to the entrance. Anybody ever done that? And then you're like, Jesus, please, 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 please. And then while you're praying, you open up your eyes because actually it should be open, but any case. So you open up your eyes and the next moment there's a guy just driving out. You're like, yes, Jesus is good. I'm experiencing the favor of God. That's wonderful. Or you're trusting God for a breakthrough on a house and you're very super excited about it. And yes, God may be intricately part of your life in that way. But don't play, downplay the favor of God to be just favors that you're experiencing. God's favor is not there for your convenience. It's there for your purpose. It changes who you are when you experience who he is and what he says about your life. His favor moves you upside down. That's exactly what happened to Peter. It changed him. When he saw the favor of God on every man, not just on the people that he thought, his friends, his nice guys. That moment, God's enemies or Peter's enemies turned to God's friends. The moment he experienced and saw something of God's favor. Second thing we do with favor is we discard it, like I've just mentioned. When I talked about the fact that we want to work for our favor. We try our best. We don't embrace what God has to give for us. It is so arrogant of us to think that. The other day, actually, I was talking to Tumi, Tumi He. We call him Tumi He, but also known as Tumi Nkosi, Mr. Nkosi, aka. And he shared with me that he really struggles sometimes when it comes to embracing God's favor. He feels like God has done so well for him that he needs to every single day pay back payback payback that's like the big thing and he feels like this big burden on his life is to pay back God's goodness and I'm like why are you paying something back that you haven't bought God has given you grace you receive it through faith that's the picture you haven't bought it he's given it freely how can you even try to think I need to pay it back? It's not like a house mortgage that you pay down every month for the rest of eternity and hopefully God will like you whenever you worship him every single Sunday. That's not the picture, guys. The picture is God is saying heaven's doors is open through my son. Do we acknowledge him as king? Because he's the only one in this favor. He's the only one that could open up and do something that would enable you to do what you do today, to have the life that you have today. God's favor enables us to do something that we could have never done for ourselves or by ourselves. It's not just a nice favor on the side. So I trust that we all will live in the fog. Do you know the fog? Fog is the favor of God. So live in the fog, okay? Live in the favor of God every single day of your life. Do not settle for the small favors. Embrace the big one. I want to end off with a story. I've shared the story many times. And um, if you've heard it, I want you to just stay with me for a moment. Because I want you to look at this story from a different angle.
the angle of favor. It's the illustration of the father waking up. Imagine your dad in South Africa next to your wife sleeping the night. The next moment you hear something in the kitchen. You wake up, you take your rolly out because you know how things happen in South Africa. They roll, so you have a rolly. Okay, you walk down the aisle, you get into the kitchen, and who do you find? You find a young man there at the fridge, busy trying to get some food into his stomach. And you're holding the rolly because you're super, super scared at what's happening. You don't know what's going to come next. The moment he sees you, he starts begging for his life. He starts explaining, I'm living on the street. I don't have any hope. I'm so hungry. I never had a father. I'm all alone. It's an 18-year-old man. I don't know how many of you guys have felt like that. You think God is pointing a gun right at your head because of what you've done. And it's like, I'm begging for my life. And deep down... You're doing what that young man is doing. You're hoping that God would not discover the real big things that you've done. Like the super bad stuff. Because in that moment, probably while this guy's begging for his life and thinking about it, there's a scream going off and it comes from the direction of your son. Your son that you and your wife are trusting God for for about 10 years now and a miracle happened and you have a baby boy. It's about eight months. She comes out crying. You look down the aisle and you see a lifeless body in her hands. And as this young man came in, baby was crying and he silenced the baby. He put a pillow over the head and the baby suffocated and died. And there you stand as a father and you have a choice to make. Four choices to be exact. First one is revenge. Very natural, very human. I just pulled the trigger. You killed my son, I kill you. Can you see the picture happening here? You kill my son Jesus on the cross, I kill you. That's what's going to happen. Second, second option, justice. Let justice prevail. I mean, that would take an immense amount of courage to pick up a phone, withhold yourself from revenge, call the police and say, come pick up this guy. Second option. Third option. This is unthinkable. This is the unthinkable option for us today. Is I forgive you, but I never want to see you again. You've hurt me so much. You've killed the most precious thing to my heart. I never want to see you. Just get out of the way. But God doesn't stop there, guys. He doesn't forgive us and send us away. And that's sometimes what we think. We think now we need to run and whenever we get close, we need to behave well. God will like us. That's, that's not what happened. What happened was, was the following. The father looking into that man's eyes, having compassion on him, seeing his story and his heart beating for that young boy. And that boy gets to experience the favor of a father when the father tells him, listen here, you've killed my son, but I want to adopt you to be my son. Come and take his place. Come and live in this house. You get his inheritance and I will love you like you are my own son. Guys, that is favor. 
that you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to compete with. That is the kind of favor that changes a sinner into a saint. (laughs) Moves you like you've never been moved before. Because that is what Jesus is saying when he's saying God is for you. He's not just doing you favors. He is for you. He's inviting you into his home. He wants you to live in the favor of God. He wants you to every single day experience his goodness day in, day out. Every single morning you wake up and you realize I'm waking up in the bed of the man that I've killed. Whose son I've killed and I'm living in his house. That's the reality for us today. That is what we have received. Why not this morning embrace that word over your life? The word that says, come. Come home with me. Come live with me. Because that's what the Apostles' teachings is about. It's spending time with Jesus day in, day out. Living in that house. And hearing him for yourself. Can we stand? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's pray while we're standing. Close your eyes. If you need to embrace God's favor this morning, if you need to embrace him hear, hearing him say, My child, I want to love you like my own. I invite you into this home. I want you to put up your hand if that's you right now. Don't be afraid to do it. Saying, Jesus, I need you. Amen. Amen. I'm not going to call anybody to the front. I just want to celebrate with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father. Thank you that we can experience your favor. And Father, as we learn about the devotion of the early disciples, not just what they were willing to sacrifice, but also what drove them, what drawed them to give their time and their energy, surrendering every single part of themselves. Father, as we discover, it's not about a book, but it's about a person. And people are putting up their hands and saying, I've never met this man. I've never met this Jesus, but I want to embrace his favor. I want to embrace his goodness. Father, I come and pray in the name of Jesus that the hands that's up, that they will experience your goodness and your favor as they surrender their lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all say, Amen, Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.